we're from MIT, and if you ask what is the function of MIT, MIT teaches classes, it does basic research, it does applied research, it does education outreach, it does you know, a range of things. And the Fab Labs basically do exactly that same mix. And so, you know, sure, they want to use them to solve local needs, but in many ways, the most important product of the lab is the act of making. <laughs> This is the SOLIDWORKS Born to Design podcast, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SOLIDWORKS. I'm your host, Cliff Medling, and this episode of the Born to Design podcast is titled From Bits and Atoms to Fabrication. Today I'm talking with Dr. Neil Gershenfeld and several of his students about the future of design. Dr. Gershenfeld is a professor and director of MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms, or CBA, as referred to here in the podcast. At the CBA, he is researching many incredible things, such as cell-by-cell development, nanotechnology, and community self-sufficiency, among other things. He is also the chairman of the FAB Foundation, which has done incredible work to change lives around the world through innovation and education. Let's jump right into my interview with Neil and some of his students, which we recorded at the 3D Experience Lab. So what's the main goal of the CBA? Let's see, I, I'd say at two extremes. It, in the Fab Lab network growing virally and spawning off things like a Fab Foundation and Fab Academy and Fab Cities, ultimately what it's moving towards is it's tapping more of the brain power of the planet. Wherever we open these, we find bright, inventive people frustrated by being ahead of local schools, by companies they don't want to work for. And, um, you know, the planet uses only a small fraction of the intelligence of the planet. Uh, I agree. And, and so the kind of meta goal is that um, within CBA, the research roadmap is very much leading up to the replicator, is, is something that can make anything including itself. And there's a surprisingly solid roadmap filling in for, uh, in the same way computing scaled from a thousand to a million to a billion to a trillion, what does it mean to have a trillion fab labs? Li right. Not metaphorically, but literally. And so that research roadmap to digitize fabrication is the core research project underlying what we're doing. That's outstanding. I, I, so I'll be honest, one of my uh, soapbox issues is, is education. Our education system, at least in America, has been very similar over the last 50 years, right? It, how can we uh, include a, bring a fab lab to, to every school? I mean, how, uh, what would that look like? I, I think so that's, is that a possibility? I'd love to see two parts to hands that. on for One our is children. There's yep. legislation in the U.S. Congress right now for the National Fab Lab Network Act, which is for universal access to digital fabrication, considering it a kind of right like communication or computation. And, okay. and so that, that's emerging as a public-private partnership in the national interest. And as a step for that, we've worked with SOLIDWORKS every year to deploy fab labs in interesting parts of the world that went from Rwanda to Bhutan to the southernmost city on Earth, uh, Puerto Williams in Chile, and we're doing a humanitarian lab in Nepal next year. But a big part of it is, uh, um, and we were just meeting about this, is the immediate next goal for fab labs is for them to be able to make themselves, meaning the fab lab machines can make more fab lab machines. And we're starting a collaboration with the SOLIDWORKS fab lab 
uh, run by Abhishek, who's joining us, to um, not deploy future fab labs by buying them, but deploy future fab labs by making them. And so that requires revisiting the architecture of the machines in the way Jake described. It requires deeper integration between the hardware and the software. But over the coming year, we'll be taking as a test case um, reproducing fab lab machines here uh, to deploy them to democratize access. It's not free and it's not utopia, but it brings it down to the bill of materials, which is you know, hundreds of dollars. Right. And so students become the trainers for, for future fab labs, right? And there's a kind of a virtuous circle where if you can make your own machine, you're empowered, you can change the machine, but you also learn about the machine. Right. And you, there's all kinds of great things to learn about how the machine works and then how you improve the machine. Exactly. Great. That uh, answers my, my next question. So I, I was about to ask where that's going. So do you have any uh, specific examples that you're proud of, of fab labs in third world countries that have created uh, a machine or, or something that has helped their community? Well, I think the best answer of all is uh, initially as they started spreading, I, I, I thought, you know, should we even be doing this? And, and the answer that came back is it's not up to me to decide who gets this, it's up to the world. Um, but, you know, it, in places, you know, we have these, we've had these in shanty towns and war zones and, you know, places of serious conflict. Um, but what's interesting for me is not any one thing they do, but everything they do. Namely, poor places don't do poor things and rich places do rich things. Everywhere we open a lab, People want to start businesses, they want to invent, they want to play, they want to make art, they want to learn. And what's been striking is how similar they are rather than how different. Bright inventive people are the same everywhere on That's Earth. That's interesting, yeah. And wherever we open a lab, they use them in exactly the same way. That's interesting. But, but are they, when you open them, are they usually uh, interested in solving problems that affect their community, though? Or? Well, no, but that's exactly yeah. the end. Like, you know, we're from MIT, and if you ask what is the function of MIT, MIT teaches classes, it does basic research, it uh, does applied research, it does uh, education outreach, it does you know, a range of things. And the Fab Labs basically do exactly that same mix. And so... You know, sure, they want to use them to solve local needs. And so, you know, there's examples of aquaponic and hydroponic systems for food or making shelter or um, making citywide data networks as practical applications. But in many ways, the most important product of the lab is the act of making. <laughs> You know, we have them at the Protestant Catholic boundary in Northern Ireland, where people come from opposite sides of the peace wall, that's really the war wall, and come together and collaborate in the lab. Um, we have them in Alaska, where Alaska natives have great cultural tradition and terrible alcoholism and suicide and unemployment. And it mixes traditional crafts with modern digital technology to engage a new generation. Um, there's a wonderful fab lab in Detroit, working with at-risk youth, de delivering better life outcomes than the social services on offer. In each of those examples, there's real monetary value in those benefits, um, along with these great social values. And in a sense, the product is the benefits of making something, not just simply selling something that you made. 
We're here at the Dassault Systems Fab Lab, and with the Fab Foundation that you started, what was the inspiration from that? Uh, so it was an accident. CBA runs millions of dollars of research tools originally funded by NSF. Congress passed legislation for agencies to measure social impact, turned to NSF and said measure social impact. They didn't know how to, they told us to, we didn't know how to, um, but we thought the machines were cool. So I teach a class called How to Make Almost Anything, and the group with me has first taken and then helps me teach it, and had this tremendous response of hundreds of people every year trying to get in the class. So we thought it'd be interesting to let ordinary people get access to the tools we're using. So we put together a mini version of the lab at MIT, uh, which today means about a ton of equipment and about a $100,000 investment, and set one up in inner city Boston, and then they went viral from there. They've been doubling every year and a half, and there's a few thousand now. That's great. So how hard was it to get into that class for you guys? I started the class for my own students, and so my own students don't have trouble getting in. But what's interesting looking around with each of them is, you know, lots of students apply and say, oh, your work is very fascinating, I'd like to work with you. And then there's a subset who sort of skip that stage and just say, I'm here. <laughs> and that's roughly what everybody here did. They sort of self-identified and just announced their presence. But I think it's also, yeah, it, it's a connection of the, the experience you had before coming here and then how it relates to what you're doing here. So maybe quickly go around. Yeah, if you don't mind, yeah, coming up. Um, so I, before coming to CBA, um, undergrad, I studied math and physics, um, then kind of went into software, worked for a variety of startups in San Francisco, mostly around um, fabrication technology. Okay. So I worked on some control software and design software for laser cutter that I worked on with Jake, actually. Um, then later worked on automation for CNC milling at Plethora. Um, and it was... Uh, Oddly enough, where I went to my undergrad, there was no mechanical engineering department. I was not exposed to fabrication at all. I was just doing like pure math. Um, so it was working at those startups that I really kind of was exposed to this world and completely fell in love with it. And since then, um, I've been all about trying to kind of combine the worlds of software and math and physics, this more ethereal world to get right into uh, how it meets the physical world. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now I work on um, kind of design optimization and inverse design problems where you specify what you want your design to do instead of drawing a shape of your design and then you let the computer figure out the shape for you that uh, satisfies your goal best. Exactly, we talked about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm Amira, so um, before coming to CBA, um, my background is in architecture and a bit of computer science, uh, but it was doing design tools and, and like working uh, on like the design side, but I was like always ha had like this idea as like I used like simulation tools and other like fabrication tools as black boxes. And I, when I came to CBA, I was more interested in, in learning how to like do all the workflow like from simulation to optimization from scratch. So I can create like more software for designers to for them when they choose a design decision to understand what's the implication either in like simulation or fabrication and create like more um, like seamless workflows. Right. So I'll join in. So Amira and Eric are both part of a project. Uh, the former head of optimization and math and geometry at Boeing moved to DARPA because he felt like there were so broken design needed to be rebooted. And so we've been uh, working on a project to implement morphogenesis, which is how biology does design, um, which is really beautiful, how evolution searches over designs and implementing engineering and analogs to that. See, Jake? 
Come on up to the microphone. Jimmy, how are you here? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Jake Reed. Before I came to the CBA, I was a machine designer, which is a niche I got into by being an architect. And uh, I worked, yeah, with Eric uh, at a company called Other Lab in San Francisco, designing a, I'm doing air quotes, low-cost laser cutter, which was about $50,000. Did what quarter-million-dollar machines would do, but I came to the CBA really interested in sort of building CNC machines that can be more accessible, not just lower cost, but also, like Amir was mentioning, a lot of tools we use right now are black boxes, um, tools we can uh, reconfigure and sort of customize at so a higher level. Jake is working with one of the core Sol SolidWorks, so that's Jake. Jake's working with one of the core SolidWorks developers, Sean Liu, on really killing off, finally, G-codes and STL that Machines work the way computer networks used to work ages ago, where there's a lot of configuration in the machine, and the machine can only do what its internal configuration was programmed to do. And there's a lot of fighting over what are the future of those formats. Um, Jake makes machines that work like the internet, that they're real-time networks, and there isn't state in the machine. What the machine does is determined by how you connect to the machine, and so you build software clouds that overlay on the physical clouds to make these new style of rapid prototyping of rapid prototyping machines. And right. that makes it easier to change the machine, and it also makes it easier to exp express high-level goals to the machine. And so SolidWorks implemented what's called Fab Connect, which is a portal to be in the design cloud and interface it into the machine cloud. That's great. Finishing the intros, Filippos. Hi, I'm Filippos. I'm a postdoc at Niels Group at CBA. Before CBA, uh, I was designing machines to understand biology, and before that, uh, I was uh, studying fluid dynamics, and CBA kind of brings all these disciplines together, and now we are designing machines uh, for materials measurements, uh, and generally materials processing uh, devices. So Filippos is part of a project with the National Institute of Standards to do open materials, to open source designs for materials measurement and processing and then develop uh, better ways to develop and use materials. Oh, excellent, excellent. And then let's see, uh, James manages CBA's operations and the most recent thing he's doing is deploying a million dollar super fab lab in the south of India, a fab lab designed at making fab labs. Fab lab designed at making fab labs. That's great, <laughs> that's excellent. So it sounds like all of you were in industry before and came back to the CBA and I, I like how you put it, Eric. You mentioned, you know, taking ideas that were more theoretical at the time and making them more practical. Is that the main focus you guys are looking for? That's what brought you back to the CBA? Or? Well, let's see. I make a deal with each of them that a third <laughs> of their time is carefully planned research based okay. on histories of research arcs. A third is chores that support the lab and our practical commercialization and short-term applications. And a third is free play, is none of the above. And what's interesting is progress comes from the intersection of those. If all we did was short-term reduction to practice, we wouldn't ask deep questions, but if we only asked deep questions, we wouldn't get anywhere without the short-term reduction to practice. And so we manage that as, a, as an ecosystem of activities. So uh, a quick question for you or, or any of you that answer. I mean, we, we're always talking about the future of design, what's next, but I, I like to think of it as, is somebody listening to this, maybe a new designer, somebody looking for their next step or their next career move, uh, where should they be looking? Where do you think the future of design is? Where should... Well, here, w w keeping an eye on time, why don't we go around and have everybody give a a an answer, what's the future of design? Okay, that's great, yeah. <laughs> Eric? 
Not to put you on the spot, Eric. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> so design is very broad. It would depend a lot on, are we talking about design for aesthetics? Yeah. Or no, no, no. Yeah, whatever no, whatever no, you choose. You, whatever you aspect no, of design no, you no, dis yeah. no disclaimers. You just have to answer yeah. what's the future of design. <laughs> <laughs> Um, design, engineering, innovation, fabrication, any the, of those areas. I yeah. think the future of design is moving towards an interesting collaboration between what people are good at doing and what machines are good at doing, so we can kind of get the boast of, bo best of both worlds. So Eric, the, the morphogenesis we've worked on, um, the computers cheat, and one of the hardest parts is they solve what you told them to do, but it's often not what you really meant. <laughs> Um, okay, Abhishek, no, future good. of design. Yeah, so being an industrial designer myself and of course, you know, with the 3D experience platform and all that stuff, the future of design is definitely collaborative and with machines, but also uh, with different human capabilities like, um, you know, a design, an industrial designer working hands in hands with an engineer and uh, with, a, with a, say, product technologist and electronics engineer on the same pla platform working on the same data. So I think that's, that's where design is going okay. right now. Okay, James, future of design. Um, as somebody without a technical background, I hope the future of design is for the layman, for people that are at ground level. So uh, these guys are working on the technical, but as somebody from a different perspective, I just hope it's more readily available to get started, to, to be accessible so that these visions can happen. A great point. Okay. Yes. Okay. Amira. Um, I, I think the, like, um, like, the, uh, I mean, the, I think the future of design now is like, like now you have with the digital fabrication, you can like have a very fast like uh, turn, like uh, like to start designing something and seeing it fabricated right away. So you can like, the future design will be more like getting f feedback from what you designed and like having this in the loop and like trying to close the loop between what you intended to design and what actually happened. So I think that's, uh, that could be like- Closing that gap. Okay, okay, good, good. So because, I think the future, the future of design lies in biology, and really materials that embody uh, can do compute, can compute actually. The biology. Okay, there you go. Different. Jake. Um, yeah, I think to the same thing Amir was saying. I would hope that the future of design looks more like a uh, craftsperson shop than like a person in a cubicle. Okay. Excellent. And. Um, for, for me, it, modern computing traces back to John von Neumann, and I, I work once removed with his students, and he ended his life not studying computation as software, but studying um, self-reproducing systems. So he ended up mathematically modeling a system that communicates a computation for its own construction as essentially a mathematical model of the essence of life. And for me, that's the future of design, communicate, computations that communicate their own construction, eliminating the distinction between bits and atoms. And up until recently, that was a theoretical goal. We're now at a place to be able to do that experimentally. Thanks for listening today and remember that if you are looking to quickly create and collaborate on 3D conceptual designs and organic shapes using cloud-based tools and deliver innovative products to market faster, check out our 3D experience products as Dr. Gershenfeld mentioned today in this podcast. To learn more, go to SolidWorks.com slash 3DXTools. That's SolidWorks.com slash 3DXTools. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SolidWorks.com slash podcast or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating. I really hope that what you heard today has inspired you. If you enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes, search for the Born to Design podcast, and please leave a five-star review 
so that this podcast will be recommended to more people, helping us expand the Born to Design community. Thank you.